Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Pod, and, and today's pod is just, it's a special one for sure. 100 episodes. If anyone involved in this on our end thought this was going to get to 100 episodes, uh, you need to be a little more honest with yourself. There is a 0.1% chance we were going to ride this to 100 episodes, but here we are. And not only did we get to 100 episodes, uh, we locked up some Canadian rock royalty as our guest for the 100th episode. Yeah, Brad from the Crash Test Dummies, which, while they weren't an integral part of my childhood, I know their music, and I know that they were an integral part of your childhood. And it's it's a huge pod to sit down with someone who has all these, like, all this experience and all these great songs and just listen to him talk. And Brad was super humble and very nice about everything. He was super kind. Uh, at one point during the recording, you guys lagged out, but Brad just apologized on his end and it was just an incredible pod and he's a super nice guy yeah i know it was uh it was a great uh opportunity to sit down with rock royalty and talk about what you know goes into a life like that and he was honest um talking about how he didn't really care for touring in his younger days he likes it more now he talks about how he you know the, the new song sacred alphabet and uh what he's you know trying to do with it it's not a, a straight up let's go back and five guys or four guys in the room and let's write a song. He's doing it on his own in a completely different manner than the previous crash test dummy songs were written. Uh, he's truly on a second act of the crash test dummies. And he mentions he's 58 years old. It's he's not, you know, you, this is it. This is his last kind of opportunity to, to really change something and put, put a new exclamation point on the end of his um, career. And he's not wasting it. He's going for it. And we just couldn't have been more happy to have uh, Brad on the podcast. It was, it was such an honor to have somebody like him for our 100th episode. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good pod. It's a great listen. And all these um, all these bands like Metallica and stuff have been touring for a while. And the Crash Test Dummies kind of went away. And now they're making their big comeback. And uh, it's just, it's just it's, it's incredible to listen to. But without further ado, Brad from the Crash Test Dummies. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really exciting to be able to sit down and talk to someone who's had so much success and, and these experiences in a business like the music business. And, you know, we we see you coming back to try it again. I guess we understand just how much that sits in your blood. Yeah, it certainly does. You know, when I was a younger man, I used to see touring as a necessary evil because, um, after all, it was something that I was not... Uh, well, I didn't love it at the time because it was just the schedules were so hectic. I mean, I'd have to get up at eight in the morning and go to bed at three in the morning. And, you know, any more sleep than that was rare. And I uh, I had a really hard time with it. Now that I'm older, oddly enough, um, I well, it's not odd, really, because I, I enjoy touring a, a great deal more partly because my schedule isn't as insane as it was back then i'm able to you know uh, pretty much have time to myself on the road when i'm not actually 
doing a show and I have time to rest and take care of myself. Well, I'm, so, sure, some um, that, I'm sure some of that comes with, with, with your stature at this point in your career where you don't feel like you have to take every request on. Yes, that is possible now, whereas it wasn't before. You're quite right. So we let's talk a little bit about the early days of the crash test dummies. Were you always like musical in high school and, and, and a, a career as an artist was something that you'd envisioned for yourself? Um, yeah, it, it was. Um, well, actually, no. You know, when I was a little kid, I fantasized about being in a band, but I didn't really ever think it would actually happen. It just seemed too remote a possibility for me to be in a successful band. But as I got older, opportunities started presenting themselves. For example, my next door neighbors, the Riddells, one of the Riddell boys decided to open up a little after hours club called the Blue Note uh, in downtown Winnipeg. And uh, it became a very famous place. A lot of acts that were traveling through Winnipeg would go there after their show and do a an acoustic gig or something and um at the time i was quite close to curtis the owner and i said to him why don't we form a house band and he said great idea he played drums we found a bass player and we had this little trio and then soon after that i thought you know we should have a keyboard player and i found ellen reed and she was the first original crash dummies member to come on board at that point and then over the years our uh, as i was going to college i um played there every weekend and we would do these sets of cover tunes they could be anything from tv theme songs to um you know alice cooper's greatest hits or it was just off the wall kind of crazy fun uh having a lark sort of a gig and then when i got out of the universe university i decided that i wanted to write my own songs and so the emphasis of the band shifted and our personnel shifted until we until i came up with a lineup that i was happy with and at that point it took a more serious turn so you were always kind of the visionary after that of after that little trio became morphed into what was the the early incantation of of the cash test dummies yeah i was i made all our set lists and then when we started performing original material i i wrote all of that and i funded the recording of our first demo tape which actually landed us a record deal and so that was all instrumental in our success uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's 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 a unique position to to be able at that age, I guess, to be able to kind of have the the wherewithal to to steward yourself through that. I mean, so many of bands, in, you know, at that formative point in their career, you know, they're still they don't there's no money in it. They're they're struggling, and you guys were able to, I guess, you know, with your unique voice and and the the you know creative, you know, you didn't sound like anything else. I'm guessing um, that that's that's what enamored you to these people that that were maybe signing you to those early record deals and and putting you on stages around canada yes there was an element of that we got very lucky in that um the demo tape that i made 
I sent it out to uh, a promoter named Richard Flohill, who um, who fell in love with the recording. And although he, I I had sent it to him in hopes that he would book us at this festival in Toronto. Um, he didn't book us, but what he did was gave me enormous encouragement. He said it was one of the best demos to ever come through his office, that they got a lot of tapes, but nothing like that one. And um, in the following, in the months that followed, the Canadian music industry had its annual event at in Winnipeg. And... Um, Richard Flohill talked up all these A&R guys from these record labels and said, you got to see Crash Test Dummies. You got to see Crash Test Dummies. So there was um, an interest established in us uh, from a credible source in the Toronto music industry. A label war ensued in which BMG eventually won out. And that's uh, kind of how that went. And and so you guys were at that point were kind of looking like what were your what was your horizons at that point like you were you were talking you wanted to be big in Canada be big in North America what what were you thinking you guys had in the tank at that point uh, to be honest I had no expectations I figured that we might just very well you know have poor sales and drop off the radar and never be heard from again. I knew that that happened all the time, you know, like out of every 10 bands that get signed, only a few ever rise to any kind of level of success. So it was a great surprise to me when Superman's song just raced up the charts in Canada. Yeah. And I, I remember that, you know, that was, uh, those, I was, I don't know, early teens, I guess, kind of thing when that happened. And, and I remember it was such a unique song. It sounded like nothing else on the radio that, even if it wasn't your cup of tea, you listened to it two or three times to to understand what all the different things that were going on with it. And then by then, it was kind of an a, a earworm type of thing. By by the time you understood what you were listening to, you actually were toe tapping along with it, and it was everywhere. So you kind of just did, the next thing you knew, um, it was it was the most popular song going. So it was that a. a a bit of a unique ride. It had to be surreal to kind of watch that happen around you. Yes, it was kind of surreal, as you put it. In fact, the guy who worked the single at radio from BMG later told me that he barely had to do anything. The song just flew up the charts of its own volition. It just kept getting ads over and over again. I was totally blown away. I mean, I had no expectation that we'd have a number one hit at all zero so when it came to that i was ecstatic what what does it look like for a, a, a young band out of winnipeg that's got a newly minted number one hit very early in their career like is the is there a lot of pressure to to record more is it more to get out in front of the people as as many as many new fans as you can what's what's that period look like in your guys's career well when the when the single took off, we basically toured Canada constantly for quite some time. So what the song translated into was many, many gigs. And, you know, you asked whether or not there was any pressure on us to produce more of the same when we were done. And um, in fact, I didn't feel any pressure. I kind of felt like the first record I'd made was okay. It had a really good song on it for sure, Superman song. 
But many of the other songs I wasn't that happy with. They were my first efforts, my first creations, and my feeling was that my second record would, of course, naturally be better because I'd be more experienced. For whatever reason, the some people thought this was a rather cocky attitude to take. I just thought it was common sense. And of course, it, it was common sense, and it turns out that our second record is, in fact, vastly better than our first record and does stand the test of time in a way that the first record, in my view, doesn't. I think that the song, Superman song, stands the test of time, but the whole record doesn't stand up well. Whereas God Shoveled His Feet is just solid track after track, in my view. <laughs> well, and I, th I think that's, you know, you have to kind of have that, um, you know, whether it's cocky or not. Y if you go into a recording, any album, second, third, or tenth, thinking, well... <laughs> Uh, the best the best is over and i'm just here going through the motions that will show up right like you, you have to go in thinking you've got your best material absolutely and i always felt like i had my best material every time i made a made a record <laughs> well that's 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 i think that's the, the the difference with somebody who does it for a living right like that you know how to poke and prod and find those those little unique creative niches and and explore them and if they're a dead end you walk away from them rather than try to beat a dead horse yes that was a, a lesson i learned well when i was at a songwriting camp in france um i was writing with carol king and she said to me brad i'm not going to try and tell you anything because you seem to really know what you're doing and then she proceeded to try to tell me what i should do <laughs> which was um never to well for any length of time on an idea that didn't seem to want to get off the ground to move on right not to beat any kind of horse to death because it would just you'd, you'd be much better off trying a fresh idea than you are um, trying to rework the same idea over and over again that just doesn't seem to be coming to fruition and that was good advice because i had on some occasions um flogged away at my songs although i think they turned out well anyways god shoveled his feet the title track of our second record took a couple of weeks to write just the lyrics let alone music and the the music took another couple of weeks and i you know i know a lot of people that write songs in a day and, and i'm one of those people I, I became one of those people eventually uh but in the back back in the first the days of the first two or three records i used to take a long time to get anything read so you, you guys had a at, at some point in the next little bit of your career you you guys were included on the dumb and dumber soundtrack and that was a bit of a breakthrough probably across north america people trying to figure out who's this unique sounding band that was pro featured so prominently so did that was that another like little bump or were you guys already on that trajectory when that happened well you know by then mm -mm -mm, had really done quite well um in america and so we were made candidates for the dumb and dumber soundtrack by virtue of our success okay so that came afterwards the success with mm -mm -mm is a very different story however it's an interesting one um a little sad to be honest in that um when we first put out god shoveled his feet Canada, the Canadian music industry, rather, decided they'd had enough of crash test dummies and they were going to just sink this one down the toilet. Um, our hometown newspaper printed an incredibly harsh review of the record that was extremely negative.
much music wasn't interested in playing the video the song went up and down the charts in a very short period of time and it was over in canada as far as canada was concerned we had you know had our sophomore failure and that was that however in the united states um we were getting some airplay in atlanta georgia and um the airplay was being followed up with sales at the local stores and when the the american record company noticed that they said this is significant because of course the correlation of airplay and sales doesn't always work out sometimes you get airplay and no record sales it's a very odd thing but we were getting considerable sales based on very little play and so Arista decided that they would plug us into the machine all of a sudden at every show there were label reps and all of a sudden i had a, a pile of press to do a mile high and all of a sudden you know things started getting bigger faster and faster so america ironically saved us from our own native canadian music industry and the uh the canadian music industry was so upset about the fact that this song had done so well and that they'd uh, ignored it that they asked us to shoot another video for a new single so that they could play the shit out of crash test dummies just like we were getting played in america so we actually stopped the middle of in the middle of a tour and made a video for swimming in your ocean that was released in canada only it was the only place that anybody ever saw it and it was because mm -mm -mm had been buried by oh, yeah. by uh by the record industry that's uh that's unique because i always i feel like you know once you attain a certain level of of success in canada and, and i would have assumed you guys were at that point you kind of become canadian sons and and everywhere and daughters and everyone looks out for you i, I didn't realize that um once a, i always thought like a, you know our lady peace and tragically hip and the watchman or whatever like they they achieve the success and then not everything might be always awesome but because they're canadian canadians stand behind them well you know canadian fans stood behind us to some extent but they just weren't made aware of the record because the canadian music industry wouldn't oh. play us so what is what is that post dumb and dumber bump look like then i mean that was uh, i i i don't have my dumb and dumber imdb up but it's got to be that was in the 90s at some point yeah that was during um god shovel his feet so that was during the height of our success that was during the same period that weird al yankovich covered mm -mm -mm and rewrote the lyrics and the verses for a song called headline news and he released that as his first single so that song was incredibly successful for us both as a single um as uh as well as a, a cover by weird l what's what's that like what's that experience that's, that's a milestone that's like <laughs> god just waved his hand and said you've made it <laughs> weird al covered you <laughs> oh that has to be very interesting to sit back and and watch people go crazy over your your music your melodies and then somebody else's lyrics well and you know weird al is just a gem of a man and a hell of an accordion player that that's a difficult instrument to play people don't quite appreciate the accordion anymore because it sounds like something you'd hear in a polka or something 
right. on bingo night. <laughs> but in fact, um, he's quite amazing. You know, in order to cover someone else's material, you don't need permission. You just need to pay the person. Weird Al doesn't have to approach the artists that he approaches and ask them if they, he can cover their songs, but he does anyways. And he thus built up goodwill amongst the people who he who he covered. And what he does is he cuts a deal with you and he says, okay, so we'll split the publishing 50-50, my lyrics, your music, and um, I'll put you on my record. And they made it a single, as I mentioned, and it's just all good. You know, there's just no downside to any of that. Well, it, and it's He makes it a very tantalizing proposition. And it, it also shows that a good song is a good song, right? Like it, it shows that, you know, the, the work that goes into some of this art that that people put out into the world, you know, it, it doesn't have to be top 40 or it doesn't have to be a number one hit. He's done a lot of stuff where you're like, wow, that works in a number of different, you know, veins, even if it's not exactly like, you know, he like you say, he puts a lot of accordion on songs that, um, didn't originally have accordion on them and stuff like that. And I think that's the thing that I always took away from Weird Al, his his incredible wit and, and clever lyrics, but also the fact that he can rework a song and, and it's just, if the bones of the song are good, it's just a good song. You know, that expression, the bones of a song, is a really good one. The bones of music are, you know, it's it's just a very apt phrase well done <laughs> thanks <laughs> so you, you guys went through a period after that where there was it looks like there was like some stops and starts about whether or not you were going to do some solo work or, and then you guys came back together and maybe did a couple more albums but at this point was was the were, were you guys interested in still doing the crash test dummies after a 15-year run or or was was that doing like you mentioned a songwriting camp like did you want to go and write songs for other people and, and expand your horizons in that manner well the songwriting camp came uh right after god shovel his feet so that was still fairly early on it wasn't anything like 15 years later um our the our career arch took a dip on our third record, A Worm's Life, and never really did recover um, when we put out our next fourth record, Give Yourself a Hand. And by then, I was so tired of one of the employees at the record label that I just asked to get off. I didn't want anything to do with a major label anymore. So <clears throat> I made records on my own for a while and put them out on my own label. And then I realized what happened was Napster came onto the scene and all of a sudden everyone could get music for free and the music industry plunged into chaos. And there was no more uh, money in it. And I hadn't been doing well financially off my own personal releases anyways. So I just stopped making records for many years. It wasn't until... 2018 when we played that um symphony show in winnipeg that the band had got had been together and that really provided the catalyst for us to hit the road again because we had such a great time doing it it took it it took us having some time off for us to uh, get the momentum to go back on the road and it's interesting you know like 
in the 2000s, for example, there was not very much demand for crashless dummies. But in the 2020s and in the late 2000s, there was. There seemed there, this nostalgia for the 90s crept into the culture, and all of a sudden we were very viable again. And we're now touring more than uh, just as much as we ever had in the old days, touring extensively through uh, America, through Canada, and through Europe. And um, we'll probably go to Australia and South Africa as well. So with that whole other time when you were creating, like you said, you had your own record label, were you releasing other music? Did you, were you developing other young artists or was that something that you kind of put together for just to release your own music? It was just for my own music. So you were playing a part in that music scene that you were kind of, the EBK, like, I mean, you worked with somebody that you didn't, didn't enjoy the relationship anymore and you you stepped out was that just an opportunity to take a break from the music scene altogether or were you still always playing no it was an opportunity for me to make music without having someone looking over my shoulder and telling me what to do every five minutes <laughs> <laughs> so now you're back in 2018 and you guys have your symphony show and, and was that like uh this this feels good and it feels like we never left or was it like you guys kind of feeling each other out to see what everyone's you know vision of of where this could lead looked like well none of us thought it would lead anywhere we just had such a great time that we spontaneously decided to keep doing it so that was the atmosphere that was a a nice rekindling of an old flame so the common the common thing that is rolling through a bunch of this so far in your career is is you never really went into a lot with big expectations you always just kind of let things progress as as they would and you know, we're open to things that came from it. Yeah, I think having expectations is a big disadvantage because then you set yourself up for disappointment. <laughs> it's also, you know, absurdly cocky to think you're going to do well every time. The music business is a very fickle business and things, success comes and goes very quickly sometimes. The, the music business would have looked vastly different when you guys reconvened in the in the late 2010s than it would have been when you guys were enjoying the bulk of your success in the 90s what what's some of the differences and, and were you guys able to navigate them were you guys set up for for to be able to you know do the digital singles and and that kind of stuff or, or was it something that you guys were like whoa this is we gotta we gotta figure out what we're doing here um initially all we wanted to do was tour so we did it on the strength of the anniversary of our successful record. Mm -hmm. I forget what anniversary it was, some absurdly large number, 30 years or something. So I think it's been 30 years since the release of God Shovel His Feet. Yeah, because it came out in 93 and it's 2023. So that's exactly 30. So anyways, we toured on the strength of an, an anniversary for for a, a few years and then it became apparent to us that to remain viable we, we should really have some new material so we recorded uh, a new song that i had, had written and we can talk about that song that's kind of a big subject in itself but we managed to put it together and um you're quite right the music business is much different now and the the release of a single has is attended by a completely different set of 
of um, engagements than it was before. Before, it would have been service to radio, for example. Now, one services it to streaming platforms. And, uh, you know, there's a number of other differences, too. They're minor and kind of boring. So I'm assuming the, the, the song that you're talking about is the release last week, Sacred Alphabet? Yes, indeed. So, so why don't you talk a little bit about what it's like after uh, all these years to, to be releasing new music in this new market? Well, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I decided that I would study classical piano at the age of 58, <laughs> which is kind of an absurd thing to do because, of course, it's a very late start in an area where people typically begin when they're children. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, I wanted to engage in some new musical activity, just purely for my own pleasure. Um, and then when I started playing the piano, I got more and more curious about the music that I was playing. So I sought out a composition teacher to teach me how the music was structured and on based on what theoretical principles because the way classical music is written is quite a bit different from the way one writes pop music and i started to study a discipline known as counterpoint which is a musical method for writing multiple melodies that sim can be played simultaneously the difference between counterpoint and modern music is something like this or, or, no, let me put it this way. In modern music, there's a melody on top and beneath there's support in the form of bass and drums and, and you know, lower, lower pitched instrumentation. In counterpoint, on the other hand, what's going on is that there are a series of melodies that all intertwine together. So there isn't one sitting on top being supported. All of them have their own melodic power. And it's a, like I mentioned earlier, it's a totally different way of looking at writing. And it affected me in a big way. Sacred Alphabet is the result of my studies in counterpoint. It, you probably notice it's written on the piano and has kind of a classical feeling to it. Very uh, haunting, yeah. Oh, thanks. I wrote that piano part, note for note. That's the first time I've ever done anything like that. So that for me, that song was an absolutely brand new approach, and I'm really happy with the results. I, I think it turned out really well, and, and I think the lyrics are some of my best. Oh, it's an incredible piece, that's that's for sure, but it's it's unique and different, and, and I think because Crash Test Dummies always had that unique sound They're, they sounded like really not that with your voice and and ellen's you know the harmonies and stuff like that i think you can you can do that kind of stuff but what did the rest of the band say when you brought this thing that was completely different from so much of the music that you'd presented over the years was there some oh boy we got our work cut out for this or, or did you have it fleshed out enough that they they were able to pick their parts up and away they went you know, everybody was very impressed with the song, and we were all in agreement that it sounded so good just with the piano and the vocal that we didn't want to mess with it too much. So the band members 
put in fairly sparing parts. Our drummer really just hit the snare a few times and did some cymbal swells. Um, our guitar player didn't even play on it. Ellen, of course, did her extensive backup vocals, which in which she turns herself into a choir at the end of the piece. But yeah, the, the band was very behind the music, and I'm very grateful that they're so supportive of whatever I want to try. So is this is this indicative of, of what makes Brad tick moving forward, or was this something that you just had to prove to yourself that you could do? And and the, the music and material that you're you're favoring moving forward sounds a little more like traditional crash test dummies. No, this is definitely a new vein for me that I'm going to explore more thoroughly. I'm going to write more songs along contrapuntal lines and um, see where it takes me. So is that have you, have you written music with and for other people or is this always been something that's so personal to you that it's for you and your use? Well, that's an interesting question because as it happens, um, I initially wrote this piece for someone else, for my piano teacher and this vocalist who he works with. Um, they do concerts and they play art songs in the classical tradition. And so my goal was to produce a so-called art song, leader in German, if you like. Um, and um, I apparently I was successful at it because um, they were very much taken with the piece. And they released a version of Sacred Alphabet that came out on YouTube before our release ever appeared. You can find it. If you if you look it up, it's on there somewhere. Under Sacred Alphabet, it's got the same name. Yep. Oh, okay. Only it says Walter and Amanda. I can't pronounce their last names properly, so I'm not going to try. Walter and Amanda. Okay. Well, we'll have to have a look for it. We'll we'll, we'll link it in the show notes, both both uh, your guys's and, and theirs, so that we can see the juxtaposition and talk about because it's unique. It it's the same kind of thing, like weird al doing somebody's song like there's two versions of the same song somebody else's artistic vision of of it it'll be interesting to to compare the two yeah i think so too so being and and the, i've used this podcast as a vehicle to reach out to a number of musicians um i don't think any of them have, have sold anywhere near near the records that you have but i because a musician to me it's it's you know uh, that's what i would like to have done and spent more time doing in my youth and playing my guitar, being more serious about it. Um, and and I'm, I'm just fascinated by the life. But the one thing, whether it's somebody that's had number one hits and, and been on, you know, huge movie soundtracks or whether they're just slogging it out, making home recordings and, and playing around around the kitchen table is that the music industry can be very, very difficult to manage in, in terms of the mental health and and you know maintaining a positive outlook on the work that you're doing when so much of it is out in the world and it's so subjective people are, are giving you their their opinions on your output whether you asked for it or not what is it like for someone who's had so much success um to come back and put something so different and heartfelt and stark out there well how do you manage the mental health part of of going out and, and just burying your soul like that well, you know, that's a good point. Um, let's see now. When I was a young man, I really identified 
myself as a songwriter. My it was my personal identity. It was who I was first and foremost, and that turned out to be not a very healthy thing, mental health wise, um, because you know if your record succeeds, then sure you feel great about yourself. But what if it doesn't? That can be a very emotionally difficult thing to face. And it was really depressing on our third record when we weren't selling records and we were playing venues that were only half full. It was not fun. So it can be difficult. Ultimately, I spent, you know, a good 10 years of my life not writing music, 10 or 15 years. Um, and during that time, I struggled quite a bit to regain an identity for myself. I plunged myself into learning new things. I became a yoga teacher, for example, um, which took a few years. You know, I've, I've just never really been happy not being in a position where I'm learning something new. So in any case, the mental health aspect of it that, you know, that you were getting at, I think is a very good point. I think when people start to identify themselves as being some particular thing, then you get into trouble. You have to kind of be a human being first and then whatever else you're going to be after that, at least in my experience. Does that make sense? Uh, oh, yeah. No, I, I get it totally. And I think that having the type of personality where you're always looking to learn is probably really healthy to manage that because maybe once you're good at something, um, instead of, you know, wrapping up in, in, in that as, as your personality trait, you can start to look for the next thing that you need to learn. And, and that, you know, starting something that you're not great at, you know, there's a certain humbleness to that, that allows you to, to avoid maybe some of the, the large pratfalls of when you're, you know, at the apex of a career and, and then you try something different. Well, you know, when you took that step, you knew you were going to step down because you were going to try something different. Yes, exactly. So the, the last question I like to end the interview with Brad, and I've taken up enough of your time this morning. Um, I, I like to ask people what their view of success was when they, when they started on, on their career and and what their view of success is now and how that you know how the it's different and and what went into those differences when i was a young guy uh just starting out for me success would would have simply been that people hear our record that's really all i wanted um and then by the second record I was hoping to duplicate our f success on our first record, and we did that in spades. We, in fact, vastly transcended that record in sales and in terms of interest generated around the world in different markets. Now that I'm older, success to me is going out and doing a tour that I can be proud of and coming home with some money in my pocket. And if writing uh, a song here and there and releasing digital singles is part of that process, then so much the better. And I don't think Sacred Alphabet is going to be a smash hit by any means. I think it's going to have, you know, an interesting life of its own. It's already 
on day two, it's already had 10,000 listens on Spotify. So I found that very encouraging. So yeah, that's what success looks like to me now. 100 episodes of anything is incredible. I mean, to think that we rode this to 100 episodes and we were able to get Brad Roberts of the Crash Test Dummies to come and celebrate that with us is um, mind-blowing, quite frankly. I mean, I don't know how many podcasts get to 100 episodes. I don't think it's very many. And the fact that we stuck with this all the way to 100 is, I, I don't know, it's a, we take a, an immense amount of pride. We're in disbelief. You know, we can't believe it. But uh, but here we are, and, and we were able to celebrate it with, uh, quite frankly, Canadian rock royalty, somebody who's indelibly made their mark on the Canadian rock and roll scene, the Crash Test Dummies. And as Brad talks about his meteoric rise, you know, having a number one hit on your first album, and then your second album doing just as well, um, and then going through to the fact where he wasn't making money recording for himself, and he had to figure out something different if he was going to stick this out. And I mean, he was 58 when he decided he was going to start writing on a piano and doing all these other things. So, I mean, he he knew he had to make it work and he had to figure out how to do it. And and by moving over to the uh, counterpoint style um, writing, he he was able to write something as haunting and beautiful as Sacred Alphabet, which uh, which is in the liner notes, the link to it. I, I implore you to go and have a listen to it because it's incredible. And I mean, Brad, you could hear it. He's uh, he's thoughtful. He's measured. He he understands the power of words. And I think that comes from a lifetime of songwriting. And And he was just a great guest. I couldn't have really been happier with anything that he he could have done because it was just it was exactly right it was perfect for uh, a thoughtful measured 100th episode of the second act podcast which uh which quite frankly we just can't believe we're at so thank you guys for for being along for those of you that have listened to some all or any of of our of our episodes because um quite frankly it's uh it's a labor of love we don't make any money off of this and, and we're just out here doing it because it's something that we love to do it's a nice distraction from real life so as we always say at the end of these, there are no wrong answers. There is no test at the end, so make the most out of every day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music, Happy Rock. We'd also like to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, or whatever the service you're using to listen to, use this to measure how much you like something. Join us next time on The Second Act Podcast. When you're listening back to this, Dad, you're being loud as hell.